0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Dr. John, and I bet you thought Halloween was over. It's not so. We have one more Halloween episode in our arsenal. This week on Dirty Sexy History, we're going to do the Monster Mash. As far as monsters go, there are as many candidates pushing for contention in this episode as there are versions of the novelty single from which it takes its name. From this terrifying list, we have chosen just four monsters to bring our Halloween coverage to a close for this year. As for the Graveyard Smash, there can only be one true version, and that version features Vincent Price and the Muppets, obviously. First up, Werewolves. Most ancient and medieval traditions have a wealth of monsters, such as lamia or werewolves, who can change their shape and suck the life out of the unwary, or just eat them. Although the origins of these traditions are often obscure, stories of human-wolf hybrids are relatively common and often seem to have originally been associated with some sort of military tradition. The 13th century chronicler Gervais of Tilbury was matter-of-fact about the supernatural ability of certain persons to transform into animals. Here he displays a characteristic clerical misogyny and an expectation of regional variations in this matter. We should not pass over what Beard says about the serpent which seduced Eve, that the devil chose a particular kind of serpent with a woman's face because like approves of like, and he prompted its tongue to speak. Popular tradition on serpents has it that there are some women who turn into serpents, and that they can be recognised by this means. They wear on their head a white band, like a fillet. Of course, it is certainly astonishing that they say women change into serpents, but this should not be dismissed. As in England, we have often seen that men change into wolves, according to the phases of the moon. The Gauls call men of this kind garolfi, but the English say werewolf because in English, deer, or man, is pronounced there, and lupus becomes wolf. It has also been very common, so they say, for women of Greece and Jerusalem to transform men who scorn their desire into asses by means of an extraordinary enchantment, so that they have to endure burdens and toil in the form of an ass until pity from the woman responsible relieves them of their punishment. And that brings us on to vampires. Monsters have long reflected or embodied contemporary religious and political fears and tensions. Dracul was a heraldic title, meaning dragon, and was awarded to Vlad II of Wallachia for fighting infidels. Vlad III, Dracula, was son of the dragon and the inspiration for Bram Stoker's fictional character, right down to his physical appearance which was, according to the Papal Legate's report, cold and terrible, with a strong and aquiline nose, swollen nostrils, a thin and reddish face in which very long eyelashes formed large, wide-open green eyes. The bushy eyebrows made them appear threatening. His face and chin were shaven but for a moustache. The swollen temples increased the bulk of his head, from which black curly locks hung on his wide-shouldered person. The historical Dracula intermittently ruled a kingdom uncomfortably placed between the biggest European religious and political power blocks of his day, the Islamic Ottoman and Christian Holy Roman Empires. Wallachia was an unstable buffer vassal state, caught in a tug-of-war between the two, and its rulers were pawns. Vlad had himself been an Ottoman hostage in his youth. The dynastic instability wrought by the external interference meant that Vlad was one of 11 rulers of Wallachia between 1418 and 1476. The instability is well illustrated in that those 11 rulers had 29 reigns between them. Vlad himself had two reigns, totaling less than four years. Vlad's infamy and his sobriquet of impaler date from a desperate defense of his lands after becoming embroiled in some of the very last of the Crusades. Constantinople had recently fallen, and the Ottoman sultan Mehmet the Conqueror ruled the former Byzantine lands. Probably not the best time to attack him. But that's what Vlad did. In 1462... The Turks and their allies invaded Wallachia with far superior forces. Consequently, Vlad used scorched earth and guerrilla tactics, including a night raid on the Turkish camp, and a notorious episode of mass impalement that was said to have reduced the war hardened Sultan to tears. It was a campaign that gained Vlad a sort of fearful respect, but it wasn't enough to win him backing to stay on the throne. He was framed as a collaborator by the Hungarians and spent 13 years under house arrest. Eventually, his conversion from Orthodox to Roman Catholicism was sought as a condition of his release to go and fight the Turks again. This time, however, he was killed, and his preserved head was sent to the Sultan. Vlad had transformed from hostage to ruler, from Ottoman vassal to Hungarian, from orthodoxy to Catholicism, and finally, from living man into deceased legend. But monsters weren't just about transformation. Monstrosity is a medieval concept which came to be applied to any living thing born differently. That the word monster is derived from the Latin monstrum, which more or less adds up to bad omen, tells you something of how congenital conditions were viewed. Those born with physical differences were viewed with a combination of fascination and fear, as signs through which divine providence might be interpreted. Just like in any good monster movie, it's not long before you're asking whether the real monsters are the frightened villagers with the pitchforks. The heightened millenarianism following the Reformation led people to see many of these prodigies as signs of the coming apocalypse. When the Catholic Church pushed back on these theories during the Counter-Reformation, they depicted the same unnatural differences as reflecting the unnatural threat of heresy to the true religion. For example, a child born with two heads in Meissen in 1553 was held by Counter-Reformers to represent the religious divisions in Saxony where the Reformation had begun. This willingness to use prodigies as political weapons eventually exhausted many people and began to discredit beliefs in humanity's ability to interpret such signs. Following the English Civil War and interregnum of the 1640s and 50s, there came about a distrust of religious enthusiasm, which was blamed for the religious and political extremes of the 1650s. Because of this, a more sceptical empirical approach to observing the natural world came into vogue. it came to be seen as ignorant and vulgar to predict human events from natural phenomena, and greater distinctions came to be made between superstitions and science, except that it wasn't quite that neat. Even John Spencer, a prominent restoration critic of the use of prodigies to make political predictions, left room for demons in his explanation of such anomalies. Many of the pillars of the scientific revolution itself remained pious Christians, as concerned with alchemy as with optics or chemistry. One of the foremost of these pillars, Robert Boyle, conducted a chemistry experiment designed to prove that the resurrection of a human body was physically possible. Although Boyle's experiment, using acids to break metals down to a pristine state, was just a way of proving that robust corpuscles existed below the level of sense and didn't involve any actual corpses, there were plenty of anatomists keen to experiment more directly on the human body. Even before Galen, anatomists had been struggling to witness the relatively rare dissection of human bodies which was allowed by religion and by the law. Galen himself performed showy exhibitions throughout the ancient world using monkeys, William Harvey, who would discover the circulation of the blood, had spent years observing chickens. But if you were hoping to become a successful surgeon and wanted to improve the understanding of how the human body worked, there really was no substitute for the real thing. By the time Mary Godwin, later Shelley, devised Frankenstein at the Geneva Fuckboy Weekender of 1816 listen to more on last week's episode for this, the clamor for dead bodies from anatomists was at a 10 on the Glenn Danzig scale. The Murder Act of 1752 had attempted to address this lack by providing bodies of executed murderers for dissection. The other stated intention of this act was to provide a private disincentive to murder, beyond the execution itself, which wasn't always sufficient discouragement to those choosing a brief life of infamy and relative comfort over a long and painful life. In the 1780s, the state of Massachusetts discouraged duelling by handing over the bodies of those killed in or executed for participating in duels to the medical school there. The educated might be able to separate body and soul in their minds but for most, a decent burial was essential to being able to rise again at the Day of Judgment, and no one wanted their corpse, or that of their loved one, desecrated. The association with criminality, of course, only further negatively stigmatized dissection. section. Famously, Frankenstein's use of murderous parts in the construction of his monster was a fatal flaw. Anyway, the result of all this was that anatomists became ready to exhort to extreme measures to get bodies and the dying in their families were equally ready to employ extreme measures to stop them. In addition to executed criminals, New York had another disturbing source of bodies. The bodies of enslaved African Americans were even buried in separate plots from whites, and since the white authorities were more inclined to look away, medical students stole most of their bodies from the African burial ground. The poor were also targets students stole bodies from fresh graves on moonless nights to avoid detection. Eventually, the tensions this caused spilled over into riots, with violence against the medical profession and a fatal standoff with the militia resulting. Although anatomy had potentially obvious benefits to humankind, that didn't mean altruism was the sole motivation of anatomists. For schools, More bodies meant more students. Acts of showmanship could bring wealthy patrons, and skillful dissections, especially those performed on prodigies, ostensibly in the name of science, could in practice attract paying customers to glorified shows. In late 18th century London, the Hunter brothers, William and John, ran an anatomy school boasting an individual cadaver for each student a promise which almost certainly required grave robbing to fulfill. William even posed the legitimately obtained corpse of an executed smuggler so that it would stiffen into the attitude of the Roman statue, the dying Gaul, before flaying it and having the Italian artist Agostino Carlini cast it in plaster. I mean, my donor card is signed, but come on! One of the brother's students, Sir Astley Paston Cooper, once dissected an elephant obtained from the royal menagerie in his front garden, the carcass being too big to get inside. When it came to cadavers, it was a case of the bigger the better. Unfortunately for poor Charles Byrne. Byrne, known as the Modern Colossus or Irish Giant, was a seven-foot-seven popular celebrity in 1780s England. However, the great height which made him a star was a symptom of a then unknown disorder which was already killing him at twenty two. Byrne was too good a specimen to pass up, however, and John Hunter was after his body before he was even cold. Desperate to avoid this posthumous fate of criminals, Byrne tried to take preventative measures, giving everything he had to an undertaker and to his friends to keep watch over his body until it could be sealed into a lead coffin and buried at sea. This evident strength of feeling did not dissuade Hunter from bribing the friends. Burns' empty coffin was buried at sea and his body, as he had feared, went to Hunter, who boiled it right down to its skeleton. Four years later, Burns' skeleton was put on display at the Hunterian Museum at the Royal College of Surgeons where, controversially, it has remained. It has not yet been decided if Byrne will be displayed when the museum reopens after refurbishment in 2023, or if his wishes will finally be respected. In the United Kingdom, the Anatomy Act of 1832 finally allowed for bodies to be donated to science. This reduced the need for bodies to be obtained against the wishes of the deceased and their families and must have helped to ease some of the tensions around anatomy and body snatching which fed into Frankenstein. The modern world, however, never quite abandoned its discomfort around disturbing those who had been laid to rest. From this discomfort arose another staple of classic horror, The Mummy's Curse. Research suggests that the Western fear of curses as retribution for disturbing mummies dates back to at least the early 19th century and has little to do with any actual Egyptian tradition. By the time modern Western archaeologists started digging in Egypt, the mummies were already well used to having their rest disturbed. In fact, our word mummy actually meant Medical substance prepared from mummy tissue in medieval Latin. A belief in the value of embalmed bodies in curing illnesses contributed to centuries of grave robberies, which were not exactly disincentivized by the wealth buried with them. Perhaps because so much of his wealth was still intact, the most celebrated Western opening of an Egyptian tomb took place in 1922 in the Valley of the Kings near Luxor, Egypt the tomb of King Tutankhamun. Although this was not the origin of the Western idea of the mummy's curse, it was the most sensationalised. This was probably aided by the sudden death of George Herbert, Lord Carnarvon, who had funded the expedition and died in 1923. Carnarvon was bitten by a mosquito, the bite became septic and led to his death. The press were quick to link Carnarvon's death and those of any other loosely associated persons to a supposed curse laid on the mummy's tomb. When another defiler, Alb Lifego, was dying from a stroke over ten years later in 1934, the director of the Egyptian section of the Met argued that only six were dead. He also contended that swabs and air samples from the tomb had been tested and found to be sterile. Howard Carter, who led the expedition and himself survived until 1939, remarked that all sane persons should dismiss such inventions with contempt. But as late as 1977, a 56-year-old police officer guarding the Tutankhamun exhibition in San Francisco suffered a stroke and tried to sue Osiris. The judge found the Egyptian god of the dead, resurrection and the afterlife not guilty. As recently as 2002, Mark R. Nelson made a serious study, published in the British Medical Journal, as to whether the 25 Westerners recorded by Carter as present at the opening of King Tut's tomb and sarcophagus between 1922 and 1923 were any more susceptible to early death than the other 19 present with them in Egypt at the time. And he found... No significant differences. So what about the actual Egyptians? Were the tombs supposed to be cursed? Kind of. Selina Ikram, an Egyptologist at the American University in Cairo, told National Geographic that the curse may have existed as part of a primitive security system. Essentially, some of the walls of the earlier Egyptian tombs were inscribed with warnings that desecrators would face divine retribution by the council of the gods, or a death by crocodiles, or lions, or scorpions, or snakes. This has since been rendered into the more concise Beware of the Dog. That song is going to be stuck in my head all day. It's a graveyard smash! This week, as ever, we'd like to give a huge thank you to our lovely patrons on Patreon, to Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Andy Christopher, Rachel Cooney, Michelle Dunbar, James Finch, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, Emma Young, Janine Meberg, Jessica Miller, Echo Spoot, and to Sylvia Van Eyck. If you would like to support the show, you can check us out at Patreon, or rate, review, and subscribe on the podcasting platform of your preference. Try saying that three times fast. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we will also post photos from the show. Dirty Sexy History is an independent podcast by Jessica Kale and Dr. John Jenkins. You can find more about us and our books, plus five years of blog archives, on our website at DirtySexyHistory.com. Our sources today included... John Aykroyd, The Historical Dracula, Monster or Machiavellian Prince, in History of Ireland, Volume 17... Number two, March-April 2009. Stephen Carver, Resurrection, Corpse Art, and How the Father of Modern Surgery Stole the Irish Giant. In Dirty Sexy History, December 17th, 2017. Brian Handwork Curse of the Money, in National Geographic, accessed October 2021. Frank L. Holt, Egyptomania. Have we cursed the pharaohs? In Archaeology, Volume Thirty Nine, Number Two, March-April, nineteen eighty-six. Andrew Laird. the White Goddess in Mexico, Apuleius, Isis, and the Virgin of Guadalupe, in Latin, Spanish, and Nahuatl sources. In Bestineau editors, the Afterlife of Apuleius. Francesca Miller. American Resurrection, The Doctor's Rite of 1788, in Dirty Sexy History, July 7th, 2016. Mark R. Nelson, The Mummy's Curse, Historical Cohort Study, in the British Medical Journal, Volume 325, Number 7378, December 2002. The Online Etymology Dictionary, Jennifer Spinks, Monstrous Births and the Counter-Reformation Visual Polemics, Johann Nass and the 1569 Ecclesia Militans, in the 16th Century Journal, volume number two, summer 2009. Michael P. Winship, Prodigies, Puritanism and the Perils of Natural Philosophy, the Example of Cotton Mather, in the William and Mary Quarterly, Volume 51, number one, January 1994. See you next time.